Hello, and a very warm welcome to the second episode of Tales of a Starry Night, a stories and science podcast on the wonders of the night sky. The most conspicuous object at night is perhaps the moon. When visible, it defies artificial lights and can even surprise us by appearing red and full, rising from the eastern horizon, as if reminding us of its existence. Yet not so long ago, its presence at night made a tremendous difference. As we hear in this story, from the Lincolnshire Cars, a swampy area in eastern England, which was drained in the mid-17th century. In the days before the cars, the bogs had been drained. They were full of dark things, shadowy crawling creatures, scuttling biting things, wet, slimy, sucking things. The dark things came out at night, so even those who knew the paths through the bogs dared not navigate them on a moonless night. Some of those who had gotten lost or ventured out had never been seen again. Others had returned to the village, raving mad, eyes filled with blood and the deepest of fears. When the moon was shining, though, the dark things would sneak away back into crevices, hollows and pools, and the ways were just about safe. Now the moon herself heard about this and the plight of the people. She felt so sorry for them that she thought she would investigate for herself what happened during the dark times. So at the next dark moon, she dropped down onto the earth, covering her shining silvery self under a huge brown cloak with a large black hood. She dropped down and walked the bog road. Everything was dark, so dark, only the very faint glimmer of the stars was reflected in the pools, only her silvery feet shone through, lighting her way. She tightened her cloak and carried on walking, lightly, from tussock to tussock as the path ran out. On all sides, deep water holes were calling with greed, dark openings like gaping mouths. She could feel the hungry presence of the dark things. Then, as she came near a larger pool, her foot slipped on a stone and she fell in. She grabbed at a bush to steady herself, but it was gauze and the sudden pain released her grip, so down she went further into the pool, the curled, curled pool, as the dark things gathered around her. She saw a long bramble stalk and grabbed at it, but it tangled itself around her wrists and held her fast. The more she tried to free herself, the tighter it became and the thorns beat through her silvery skin. So the moon stayed still, wondering what to do next, when she heard a man's voice. In the distance, calling, and steps getting closer, unsteady footsteps, squishing in the mud, sliding along the tussocks. Then she saw a face full of fear, that of a man who'd strayed off the path and knew what it meant. He was praying aloud, and noticed a sliver of light coming from the pool, the face of the moon, half hidden by her hood. Perhaps this man's safety, he thought. But when the moon saw he was coming closer and closer, she tried harder and harder to free herself, and in her struggle her hood fell off, and suddenly there was light, a beautiful silvery light that drove off the darkness of the night. The man cried with joy as the dark shadowy things fled back into the crevices of the bog. He could see where he was, 
he returned to the path and hurried home, so eager was he to leave the bog that he didn't pay attention to the source of this mysterious light. Alone again, the moon struggled, desperate now to free herself, yet the brambles held fast, and she only managed to pull the hood back on, and so the dark things came out again. They knew the moon was at her mer their mercy, and they knew her as the enemy, the bringer of light at night when they alone should rule. And so they gathered by the pool, screeching and howling, mocking the moon, snarling, swearing, squabbling about what they should do with her, till there was a faint light on the eastern horizon. There wasn't much time left, so together they pulled the moon deeper into the dark curled water as two giant boggles went to fetch a large boulder and rolled it there, atop the pool, preventing the moon from rising again. So there lay the moon, alone, shivering, despairing, and the days went by, and it became time for the new moon's coming. She should have been visible now, a thin crescent at dusk on the western horizon, but there was nothing. Then came the time of the first quarter, and nothing still, and every night the dark shadowy things feasted, every night they became louder, and every night they crept closer and closer to the houses. So the people got worried, and went to the wise woman at the edge of the village. Perhaps she knew where the moon had gone. The old woman listened to them. She looked into her brew pot. She stirred it a bit. Then she looked again. But there was only darkness. Nothing could be seen of the moon. So the days passed, and with them, the time of the full moon or so people reckoned. The nights remained dark, and the evil things ruled over the bog. But then, with all this talk of light and the moon, the man who'd been lost suddenly remembered that an eerie light had appeared to, to rescue him, and that had just been just before the disappearance of the moon. So off they went, he and a few people, back to the wise woman. She listened to him carefully. Then she looked into her brew pot. She stirred it a bit and she looked again, then nodded. I can see now. I can see where you can go and find the lost moon. And so she told them how they must go to the bog at dusk, each with a stone in his mouth and a hazel wand in his hand. She told them the way they must follow and how they'd recognize the stone when the moon was where the moon was held. So the next evening they went, all the men of the village, with a stone in their mouths and hazel wands in their hands. They walked through the growing darkness, their growing fears magnifying every noise. They felt cold, wet fingers reaching for them. But soon, it was as the wise woman had said, they recognized the signs and came to the pool where the moon lay buried. There was a huge stone there, half sunk in the water, and they saw a sliver of light shining from underneath it. So the men knelt in the mud, and together they lifted the stone, their muscles tense with the effort. For an instant, they saw a beautiful face shining up at them. Then the light became dazzling as the moon shot out back into the sky, and the next thing they knew is that it was there, the full moon, shining its bright silvery light on them with a smile, making paths and bog as clear as day, forcing the dark things back into their crevices. So the presence of the moon did make a huge difference, a difference I am lucky to experience in the countryside where I live. 
on a moonlit night, the lay of the land is as clear as in daylight. Only the quality of the light has changed. It is silvery, otherworldly, altering colors, shadows, and perspectives in ways I do not fully comprehend yet. And when the moon is absent, well, who knows, all kinds of things might lurk in the shadows, evil things perhaps, or dangerous criminals hiding in a city's dark corner. In the 19th century, however, came the technology that would do away with darkness for good, electricity. I quote here from an article by Megan Garber, published in the Atlantic newspaper in March 2013. She writes, American city leaders, bracing to bring their towns into the future and encouraged by electric companies seeking the same destination, tried to find better ways, cheaper ways, quicker ways to illuminate the American landscape. And in their haste to vanquish nature, by erasing the line between day and night, they ended up looking to nature as a guide. They looked up, seeking a model in the largest and most reliable source of nocturnal light they knew, the moon. And so, for a brief and literally shining moment early in the days of human-hardness electricity, the future of municipal lightning was glowing orbs above cities. This man-made moon, moons made the ultimate promise to the people below them that they would never again be in the dark. The glowing orbs were arc lamps or electric candles installed atop structures looking like oversized oil derrick up to 300 feet high. Moonlight towers. In early 19th century England, Sir Davy Humphrey had demonstrated that a blinding light could be produced by linking two carbon rods to the poles of a battery and bringing them close together. When the rods touch, some of the carbon vaporizes and acts as a conductive medium for a bright arc of current as the rods are moved slightly further apart. The light produced by this flame is incredibly bright, too intense for indoor close-range use, but well suited to city lightning. By the 1870s, many streets were lit by gaslight, but arc lamps were brighter, cheaper and safer, and incandescent bulbs weren't a serious competitor yet. Paris was first to have arc lamps installed in 1877 with street lights on the Avenue de l'Opéra and lamps in the Grand Magasin du Louvre. Other European cities followed, then the US who became leader in the field and took it to a whole new level. While Europeans were installing their electric candles on posts, like we do today with streetlights, the Americans elected to light cities and villages via a grid of moonlight towers. The first one was erected in San Jose, California, in 1881. It was 237 feet tall and housed six arc lights providing as much light as over 300 100-watt incandescent bulbs. The tower method was cheaper and more practical in many ways than street lamps. Less infrastructure and wires at a time when electricity was so new that everyone was learning on the job. Less lamps needed as their light could reach further. Less manpower required to replace the carbon rods that were consumed as the lamps burned. Lamp posts and hung lights were also used for missed out dark corners and intersections, except in Detroit whose leaders invested in a full artificial moonlight solution. Over a hundred towers, about 150 feet tall, went up in the 1880s. In a practical guide for city lightning published in 1888 and quoted in Low Tech magazine, one can read, The press of the country 
has uniformly considered Detroit to be the best-lighted city in the world. All its streets, yards, backyards and grounds are illuminated as effectually as by the full moon at the zenith. Despite the initial enthusiasm, however, the moonlight tower era was short. The tower's light was easily obstructed by trees and increasingly taller buildings, and the contrast between lit and shady areas left pedestrians confused. Animals were confused too. Chicken and geese, unable to sleep in this unnatural daylight, began to die of exhaustion. Furthermore, fog, compounded by air pollution, was enough to return the city to darkness. Historian Ernest Freiberg, quoted in The Atlantic, writes that Detroiters could only speculate about the lovely sight that their lights must be creating as they shone down on the blanket of mist and soot that smothered the city. Eventually, technological developments, both of the arc lamp and incandescent bulbs, meant street lights became the most popular and cost-effective option. The towers in Detroit remained in use till the 1910s, yet some had already been sold to Austin, Texas, the only place in the world still using this type of lightning, albeit with more modern lamps on top. Fog and smog could cloud out the artificial moons, and of course, it's the same with the real one. The moon might be there, her light won't shine through on a stormy night, or if a cloud obscures its face. This was life-changing for Rona, a woman from Aotearoa, New Zealand, and with deep respect, I will share a version of her story. The day had been very busy. Busy with chores, but also perhaps with domestic arguments, and so no one had gone to the stream to refill the water containers. Rona was thirsty, and her husband wouldn't go. In fact, he was in bed already. So she left home with a bundle of calabash gourds. After all, the children would need water too. Marama, the moon, was beautiful, shining a soft glow on the country, lighting up the well-trodden path to the little water stream. Rona breathed in the night air, deeply, trying to relax and calm down her foul mood. But then, a dark cloud momentarily obscured the moonlight. The path went dark, Rona tripped, tripped against a root she hadn't seen and fell over flat on her face. Full of anger as she was, she shouted insults at the moon that was now just reappearing. But that was serious matter indeed. Marama, angered, came down and seized her. Rona, taken by surprise and blinded by the sudden light, grabbed hold of a gnayo tree that stood within reach, but to no avail. She was carried off to the sky with her gourds and the uprooted tree in tow. Later that night, back in the village, her disappearance was noticed by her thirsty husband, and the people began to look for her. As they called loud and clear into the night, they seemed to hear a faint reply from above. Looking up, they noticed the shape of Rona, her gourds, and the gnayo tree on the face of the moon, and understood that they wouldn't see on earth again. Time went by, and Rona got used to her new abode and husband, Mahama the Moon. She became Rona Wakamautai, Rona, the controller of the tides. And without transition, and again with great respect, here is a tale from the Hazen people, 
the people of the eastern lower reaches, whose land along the Amur, Sungari and Wusuli rivers stretches across Russia and China. An old fisherman and his wife had an only son. They had married him according to the custom, and the daughter-in-law had come to live with them. She was beautiful, her face a perfect oval. She had black shining hair, dark almond eyes. She was also very skilled. She could cook and sew, but also fish and hunt, and she wasn't lazy about doing chores, ready to take her turn to fetch water at the river or gather firewood. The son was full of love and pride, and very happy with the match. The father grew very fond of his daughter-in-law. But as often goes in stories, the mother very much disliked the girl, out of jealousy perhaps. But the fact is, she was intent on giving her a hard time, whenever she had the opportunity. And she did have many opportunities, because every day the men left at dawn to go fishing, and the young wife was left with her mother-in-law, who took advantage of her willingness and delighted in giving her the hardest of tasks. Gather all the wood and water needed, fry ten pans of fish, weed nettles and brambles, clean the house, wash the clothes, and when the fresh fish arrived, she was the one tasked to lay it out in the sun to dry, watch over it and pick it up when ready. If just one was missing, she got beaten up. The young woman didn't want to upset her husband with this, for she knew he loved his mother dearly, so day after day she tried to please the older woman, but this kindness angered her even more. One evening, the young woman went to the river, carrying her buckets on a yoke. In the last of the sunlight, she happened to catch sight of her reflection in the water and saw with horror how thin she'd grown, how tired and drawn out she looked, how her hair had lost its shine. She sat by the river a while, not knowing what to do. Then, lifting her head, she saw the moon rise, red and full, over the mountain. God of the moon, she said, if you exist, please save me. I do not think I can bear this much longer. Then, as she stood up to leave a moment later, carrying her yoke and full buckets, she slipped and fell towards the river, but before she even touched the water, a white silvery sheet spread under her feet and lifted her towards the sky. She screamed out in fright and just about managed to hang onto a branch from the nearest tree, a weeping willow. She held with all her might, but to no avail. The tree was uprooted and carried all the way to the moon alongside the young woman, her yoke and her buckets of water. She was made welcome there and became the wife of the moon god. Back in the house, the old woman was waiting. She needed the water and loudly vented her anger at her absent daughter-in-law, shouting insults into the night. She ended up walking to the river, full of fury, calling, looking, and catching sight of the full moon. She suddenly saw her daughter-in-law with her bucket sat next to a weeping widow. When she returned to the house, pestering even more, her husband and son were back from fishing. Where is my wife? asked the young man. You must forget her, replied his mother harshly. I caught her stealing, and full of shame, she threw herself into the river. The young man found this hard to believe, yet his wife was nowhere to be seen. So perhaps she really had drowned. He was overwhelmed by grief, and just about managed to get by. 
the father was very sad as well, and the mother also, somehow, missed the young woman. After all, she gave her company when the men were absent, and now she had to do all the household chores again, something she was no longer used to, and it was hard on her aging body. The days passed, and a month later the young man was so sad that he went to sit by the river where the weeping willow had once stood. The full moon shone brightly and attracted his attention. He looked up, and with great surprise he noticed his wife standing with her buckets under a weeping willow. Please, please, come back, he said. I cannot live without you. I cannot, she replied. Your mother mistreated me so badly, and you didn't notice anything. The moon saved me, and I am his wife now. And the young man watched in sorrow as she picked up her yoke and buckets and disappeared into the moon. Since then, every full moon, he returns to the river with offerings of pears and grapes for his beloved lost wife. I must admit that I am yet to see a woman with pockets or gourds and a tree in the moon. But this pattern appears across cultures and links the moon with water and fertility. Some say it rains when the woman in the moon upsets her buckets. A similar theme is present in Scandinavian lore. In the prose Edda, written by 13th-century Icelandic poet Snorri Sturluson, one can read, Moon steers the course of the moon, and determines its waxing and vanning. He took from the earth two children, called Bil and Yuki, they that went from the well called Birgir, bearing on their shoulder the cask called Segr and the pole Simul. These children follow moon, as may be seen from earth. At the moment, the moon is a waxing crescent visible in the southwest at sunset. As the days pass, the waxing moon will appear further east until at the full moon on August the 3rd, it will rise as the sun sets. Perhaps then, you will be able to see the woman or the two children in the moon. I will certainly try. The moon will then begin to wane and rise later and later so that the first hours of the night will be moonless. I invite you to find a dark spot and look at which stars appear first in the night sky, the brightest stars. We'll talk about them in our next episode. Thank you very much for listening to this podcast. Please see the links in the notes for images and references. If you liked it, please share it. If you have any comments, please do not hesitate to contact me. And until next time, goodbye.